In light of the events that have been happening in our world in the last few weeks, really since 9-11, I want to talk to you today about what the Bible says about the roots of modern-day terror. And I'm going to take about at least two weeks. Today I'm going to deal about the roots, Isaac and Ishmael, and the roots of modern-day terror. And then next week I'm going to deal with the signs of the end, because Jesus gave us very clear signs of the end. What do we look for? How do you know that the return of Christ is imminent? How do you know when prophecies are coming to pass? What prophecies are coming to pass, have come to pass, and are about to? What did Jesus say would mark the end of time just before his return? You know, the Bible says that believers ought not be taken off guard, that if anybody understands it, we ought to. So this is, this is um, family business today. And I want you to be educated on what the Bible says about these things. So we're going to get educated today. You're going to have to put on your thinking caps and let the, let the wheels turn and think with me and follow me because I want to make it very clear. We're going to go through a lot of Scripture, and we're going to walk out of here not any longer wondering what the problem is in the Middle East. What is the deal? Well, let's read Matthew chapter 24 and verse 4. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me and then stand to your feet just for the reading of uh, three or four verses. And then you can be seated the rest of the time. And, and I want to minister this to you. Matthew 24, verse 4. Now, Jesus has just been asked a question by his disciples. And they said this to him, What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So according to the disciples and Christ... There is a final chapter to the book called History. There is going to be an end when everything as we know it, time as we know it, is wrapped up and finished and a new age is ushered in. So instead of saying, no, boys, uh, there's no end, he said, yeah, there's an end and here's the signs. Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. And they will deceive many. And you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Notice he says to his people, see that you are not troubled. For nation is going to rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in many different places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. Father, we thank you for your word today, and we pray you will bless it to our hearts, increase our understanding, shine on us, Lord, with revelation. Help us to be a people who understand, and we thank you for your word today. Now, will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart personally today. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Now, on September the 11th, 2001, our nation received an attack from a dark and a foreboding power. In one day, the twin towers of the World Trade Center, both 110 stories high, were leveled. It was surreal. Watching the news, it was like a dream, like a Steven Spielberg movie, but it was real. After striking the symbol of our financial might, 
the symbol of our military might, the Pentagon also absorbed a vicious attack, leaving hundreds dead and wounded. We're still a wounded nation over it today. The weapons used were incomprehensible to a civilized mind. Hijacked jets filled with innocent Americans became living missiles. We can't even imagine what was going through their minds before the end came for them. We know now that the perpetrators were Islamic extremists out of known groups of terror, particularly Al-Qaeda. Many Americans are still asking the questions, how, why, how could something like that happen? What could this possibly be about? And now in the last few weeks we've seen the chronic problem presented to us by the Middle East between the Arabs and the Jews surface again. We've heard words like World War III tossed around. Um, Armageddon. Is America going to be pulled in? Is Syria going to be pulled in? There is no question that now the new terrorist group, Hezbollah, that has come on the horizon, and now we know their name, are being financed, taught, encouraged, and sent out by Iran and Syria. And you look at this and you go, here we go again with the Middle East because this has been going on forever. I'm going to show that to you in just a moment. So what is the problem with these people? Why can't they get along? Israel gives up land in order to find peace. And we now know that the land they gave up to the Arabs, they just brought in terrorists and established more bases and began to lob rockets towards Israel. What is the problem with this area? To understand it, You've got to go back in the Bible. I've heard the news go back some, but the news isn't going back near far enough because the answer is found in the Holy Bible. We need to go back to the time of Abraham and his children, Isaac and Ishmael, if we're really going to understand the roots of modern-day terror. Now, when you look in the book of Genesis, and I'm going to go to the book of Genesis a lot today, when you go to the book of Genesis, you see that God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he called Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, where he lived. He said, I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your in-laws and your outlaws. I want you to leave everybody. And I want you to leave your familiar surroundings. And I want you to go to a land, Abraham, that I'm going to show you. And he said, I'm going to give you an heir, H-E-I-R. I'm going to give you an heir, and I'm going to give you land. Now, it's very important that we understand this because that's called the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you an heir. I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So in Genesis 15, verse 4, we hear God saying, Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body, talking about Ishmael and Isaac now, shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So there God said, I'm going to give you an heir. I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham, your son and your descendants, the descendants that come from your loins are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. In other words, innumerable, uncountable. 
Now, as you read the Genesis account, you know that Abraham and Sarah were barren. Sarah already passed menopause and past childbearing age. So they began to stress out about the promises of God. They were getting on well on in years. And, and they began to wonder, well, is something wrong with God? Is he not able to do this? Is he not able to bring this about? Where is his promise? And of course, we've all felt that before. My time is not your time, says God. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Rarely is God's time going to be your time and my time. We think he's late. He knows he's right on time. But divine time and our time are two different things. So here's Abraham and Sarah. And they began to get uptight about this. And so Sarah finally said, Abraham, I'm sick of this. I want an heir. And she said, go in to Hagar, their Egyptian maid, and have a child with her, which was a common practice in those days. Abraham agreed and did it, and Hagar conceived, and as we all know, she bore a son named Ishmael. Very important. Remember this, Ishmael. But later, just as God had promised, Sarah conceived when she was 90 and Abraham was 100, so that no flesh could get glory for this child, for it was a miracle child. And the child's name was Isaac, meaning God has made me laugh or laughter. Now listen carefully to me. The Jewish people are descended from Isaac. And the people of the Arab nations are descended from Ishmael. We've got to understand this. Ishmael, his descendants are all the Arab nations. Isaac, the Jewish people. Now God also promised to Abraham land. And this We've really got to get because that's what this whole thing is all about, yet not really. It's not really about land. As we're going to see, it's really more about who's going to have the preeminence in this world, Isaac or Ishmael. But they'll tell you that it's about land, and it is partially about land. And in Genesis 15, 18, it says, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants I have given, I have given this land. And then he talks about the land a minute, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And he names some other places that if I named them it wouldn't matter to us anyway, we wouldn't know what he was talking about. So let me just move on a little bit. But I want you to just remember, he said, to your descendants, Abraham, I have given this land. The Bible tells us that the eastern boundary was the Euphrates River. And the western boundary was the Egyptian river, identified as the Red Sea. When the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and left Egypt, God said to them, Every place on which the sole of your feet shall tread is yours. Now, who left Egypt and came over into the promised land and went through the wilderness? It was the Jewish people, the descendants of Isaac. He said, From the wilderness of Lebanon or from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, the Mediterranean, shall be your territory. In Ezekiel 48, verse 1, the Bible says the northern boundary is identified as the city of Hamath, and the southern boundary is ID'd as the city of Kadesh. Now listen carefully. So Israel's boundaries, according to the Old Testament, are present-day Israel, all of Lebanon, all of Lebanon, half of Syria, two-thirds of Jordan, 
all of Iraq and the northern portion of Saudi Arabia. You say, Pastor Jeff, they sure don't have it. No, they don't yet. But when Jesus comes again, they'll be put there. Because this is the Abrahamic covenant. Folks, you got to get this. God is a God of covenant. When he cuts a covenant with somebody, it's a done deal. Now, it's very important that we understand the spiritual roots of this thing. Because God cut a covenant with Abraham. He gave him the boundaries of the land that he was to possess. You'll find if you continue reading through the Old Testament account, the Bible tells us that under Joshua's leadership, the children of Israel took the land. Joshua eleven twenty three 23 says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel. Now keep that in your mind. Joshua took it. Let's jump ahead to Jesus' day when Jesus was here. The Jews are occupying Jerusalem and Israel, but there's something wrong. They're under Roman rule. This is why so many of them miss Jesus. Because when they, their belief was when the Messiah came, the Messiah would overthrow Rome and give them the land that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when Jesus said words like, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight for me. But my kingdom is not of this world. When he said things like that, they scratched their head and they didn't understand it because they said, what, you know, what are you doing on a cross, defeated and shamed, humiliated and bleeding and dying? We thought you were going to give to us our land, overthrow the Romans and restore us to our land. They didn't understand that Isaiah, for instance, prophesied two different manifestations of Messiah. That first he would come as the Lamb of God to die for our sins. And the second time he would return as the Lion of Judah to take over the world. The Lion of Judah hadn't come again yet, but the Lamb of God did. And so in Jesus' day they have their temple built. That is the Jewish people in Jerusalem. They had their temple built. They're practicing Judaism, offering all the Old Testament sacrifices, so on and so forth. They say they're looking for the promised Messiah, but when Jesus comes on the scene, John tells us he came to his own, and own means the Jews, and his own received him not. The Jewish people not only rejected Jesus, but they cried for his crucifixion. Jesus looked over Jerusalem just before his crucifixion and said these words, do you not see all these things? He's talking to his disciples. He's pointing to the temple and to the city. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus was, was predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened 70 years after he said that statement, made that statement, spoke those words. The Romans came in, they leveled the temple, they leveled the city, the Jews were scattered all over the earth, a million Jews were slaughtered. The Jewish people lost their homeland and were scattered all over the world for 20 centuries. Moses knew this was coming and Moses made this prediction. He said, God's going to send your Messiah and you're not going to accept him. And because you reject him... The day is coming when you will lay your head down to go to bed at night and you'll wish it were morning and you'll wake up in the morning and you'll wish it were night. 
for the pain and the agony that you're going to experience in the world because the Messiah came to you and you received him not. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come to me. And so it happened. And they were scattered. And if you read any kind of history, secular or religious, you see that the Jewish people for 20 centuries walking the world with no homeland, no certain place to lay their head. They were persecuted everywhere they went, mocked, ridiculed, rejected, spurned, made fun of, killed, harassed. There seemed to be a, a, a mark on them. And the mark was that they had rejected Messiah and Moses had predicted this would take place with them. Now, please catch this now. They were scattered. During this time, the descendants of Ishmael, the Arab people, began to occupy the Promised Land. They occupied Jerusalem and Israel for centuries. Now, around 580 A.D., almost 600 years after the death of Christ, a man named Mohammed was born in Mecca in Saudi Arabia. As a young man, he was meditating by his own testimony. He was meditating in a cave when, by his claim, the archangel Gabriel appeared to him and proclaimed him a prophet. Nobody else was there. This is what he said happened. According to Muhammad, many appearances followed over a period of about 22 years, and Muhammad wrote what Gabriel supposedly told him in a book that we know as the Quran. Now, it's very important, church, that we remember always that Muhammad lived in the 7th century. He lived in the 7th century. When he showed up with these claims that Gabriel had been speaking to him, dictating things to him, that he wrote down in the Quran. The Jewish people had been worshiping Yahweh for almost 2,500 years. So you had, a, you had a worship of Yahweh by the Jewish people that was over two millennia old. For 2,500 years, they've been worshiping Yahweh according to the Old Testament. The Christians had been following Jesus when Muhammad appeared for 600 years. And that posed a problem to Muhammad. How in the world do I make myself relevant when I've got this one religion with the Jews that's 2,500 years old worshiping Yahweh, and I've got this other one with the Christians for six centuries, six centuries worshiping Jesus. How do I make myself relevant? Ah, here's how he did it. Muhammad claimed that the prophets of the Jews and Christians were prophets of Islam. He said, and this is straight out of the Quran, our God and your God is one. He said to the worshipers of Yahweh and the worshipers of Jesus, your God and my God, it's the same God. It's one God. But that's not true at all. They are not the same at all. Quoting from a book called The Unfinished Battle of Islam and the Jews, Mark Gabriel, who was a former Muslim, now a worshiping Christian, but was raised in Islam, writes, the Quran says that Islam came before Judaism and before Christianity. It was the religion practiced by Abraham according to the Quran. Quoting straight out of the Quran, Muhammad wrote, Abraham was neither a Jew nor a Christian, but he was a true Muslim. 
Verily among mankind who have the best claim to Abraham are those who followed him. And this prophet Muhammad and those who have believed Muslims. The Quran refers to Islam as the religion of Abraham. So Muhammad reached way back before Moses penned the Old Testament. The Pentateuch, the first five books. He reached beyond that and he said Islam was before then. And Abraham's religion was Islam. The Quran teaches that Judaism and Christianity were based on the earlier revelations about Allah, the God of Islam, that came from the prophets, meaning revelations that came earlier than the Quran. These earlier revelations were the Jewish scriptures and the Christian New Testament. However, according to Islam, the Jews and Christians corrupted their scriptures and were no longer worshiping Allah properly, so Allah had to send a fresh revelation by way of Muhammad. And they're all, in, Muslim, in Islam, taught this from early, early on. Mr. Gabriel goes on and says, Islam teaches that Allah rejected the children of Israel because of their sins. And God went back to the seed of Abraham and chose a person from the line of Ishmael to be the final prophet. Beth Moore, in a video I was watching a couple of weeks ago, brought out this point that when Islam teaches the story of Abraham offering Isaac on the altar, they replace Isaac with Ishmael. And they say it was Ishmael on that altar. And when God stopped the sacrifice, that it was Ishmael that was brought off that altar. And then the promise, all the covenants, went to Ishmael. And it was not Isaac. There is, there is this antipathy, this, this constant war between the Jews and the Arabs that goes all the way back. Because you remember... After Ishmael was born by Hagar and Sarah gave birth to Isaac, the day came when Sarah looked out the window of the house. And when she looked out the window of the house, she saw Isaac and Ishmael outside and Ishmael was mocking and persecuting Isaac according to the book of Genesis. And Sarah said, that's it. And she turned to Abraham and said, get that woman and get that child out of here. And Ishmael and Hagar were sent packing. I believe it goes all the way back to that displacement that you're not the child of promise. You're not going to take Isaac's place. You are not going to be the one to whom all the covenants come. And there is a resentment that goes all the way back there. Even though God said, I'm going to anoint Ishmael He's going to be a father of nations. And we know that that has happened because of all the Arab nations. But there is this anger and resentment and hatred over the Jews because the covenant went to Isaac and not Ishmael. And when I see these things in the Quran, I just see over and over again this, this desire to overthrow, to displace, to remove Isaac from his rightful place as the son of the covenant and replace him with Ishmael. So you have this teaching that God went back to the seed of Abraham and chose a person from the line of Ishmael to be the final prophet. 
But there's nothing in the Bible to back that up. If you read the book of Quran, you'll see that there are ways you can displease Allah. And I think it's worth naming about three of them because it helps me understand why they act the way they act. The worst thing you can do is to believe in a God other than Allah or to believe in Allah but also believe in other gods at the same time. For example, a Muslim could never say, I believe in Allah and the Quran, but I also believe Jesus is the Son of God. That would be ascribing a partner to Allah, and it is a sin that won't be forgiven. Second thing you can do to displease Allah is to insult Muhammad. You cannot insult Muhammad. A third thing is to run away from a jihad, a holy war. If you run away from a jihad, you have insulted Allah. You have displeased him. So Islam claims to worship the same God as the Jews and the Christians, but it's not the same God. It is not the same God. At the same time, Islam claims to have superseded Judaism and Christianity, and that is not true, for Muhammad lived in the 7th century. Muhammad claimed to be the final prophet of Allah, but we know that's not true. Jesus was the final prophet. Jesus was the final spokesperson for God. We have a lot of people that preach what he said, but the book of Hebrews opens up by saying, now in these last days, God has spoken by his son, Jesus, once for all. And Islam requires people to earn their way into paradise by works. You do not get there. As a matter of fact, you don't know whether you're going or not. The one certain way to know you're going is to be martyred. Aside from that, it's iffy. Did I do enough works to get me into heaven? Now, does the Quran call for tolerance or does it call for holy war? Let's just get right down to it. What does it say about attacking other people? It's important that we understand today that Muhammad's life can be divided into two parts. The tolerant years in Mecca, where he first claims to receive these revelations from God, and the aggressive years in Medina, where he went after he had been in Mecca. Now, let me tell you quickly. When Muhammad began to receive these revelations from Gabriel, according to him, he began to teach what was sort of a peaceful message. He wanted the poor taken care of. He wanted good things done. And, and in other words, what he was teaching, there was nothing really uh, adversarial about it towards other religions. But he raised the ire of some of the rich in his culture there in Mecca and others in Mecca who began to persecute him until finally it became very difficult for him to live in Mecca. So he decided to go about 160 miles away to a town called Medina. And in Medina, at first, he was preaching the peaceful message. I can give you an example of that peaceful, tolerant message. This is straight out of the Quran, Surah chapter 2, verse 256. He's taught, let there be no compulsion that is coercion or force in religion. Truth stands out clear from error. Whoever rejects evil and believes in Allah has grasped the most trustworthy handhold that never breaks. And Allah hears and knows all things. This verse essentially says you can't force anybody to change their religion. The right way should be obvious if you're really looking. So it was a peaceful kind of a message. But when he moved to Medina, he could convert virtually no Jews, and this was bothering him. And this is when, in Medina, he declared jihad, holy war, and went out to convert non-believers to Islam by the sword. 
Here's a piece from his Medina writings. Kill the pagans wherever you find them and capture them and besiege them and lie in wait for them in each and every ambush. Surah chapter 9 verse 5. There he is saying literally they don't believe in Allah, in Muhammad as his prophet. Kill them. They are pagans. Take them out. And jihad or holy war was introduced into the world within the first 100 years of Islam's existence after Medina. An Islamic army attacked Egypt, killing 4 million Egyptians. From there, they went to Sudan to conquer all of North Africa. They visited Spain, Portugal, and Southern Europe. Also felt Islam's sword. The Quran commands Muslims to go and rule the entire world and submit all mankind to the religion of Islam. The very name Islam means submission. Submit. I want to be clear today. There is no question that any Muslim who understands the Quran understands the, the exhortation and the command to conquer the world. It is inherent in the religion. Say, well, Pastor Jeff, you know, not every Muslim is a terrorist. Ah, but virtually every terrorist is Muslim. Because these writings are there. They're there. And this is how I know their God is not the same as mine. Jesus said, he that lives by the sword will die by the sword. Jesus said, you spread the kingdom of God by preaching the word. I've been ministering on it for weeks now. You sow the seed of the kingdom. You water it in faith and in love and in patience. And you let the kingdom produce the kingdom. You change no one by force. You can't debate somebody into the kingdom, slap somebody into the kingdom, threaten somebody into the kingdom. No, they have to be convicted by the Holy Ghost of God and be born again by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. This is so unlike my God. Now the church boo-booed big time. As all this was taking place and Islam was growing into a definitely a huge force to reckon with, around the year 1061, a few centuries after Islam had been on the move, the Pope got word in Europe that Christians were being harassed by Muslims when they visited the Promised Land, harassed and, and, and uh, I don't know if they were actually being killed, but they were sure being given a hard time, and the Muslims had basically taken over the Holy Land, and so the Pope, the European Pope of that day said, well, here's what we do. We're going to put together a huge army, and we're going to go deliver the Holy Land from these Muslims. And so the Pope, in 1061, released the first crusade. Thousands of European Christians carrying banners of crosses and swords and weaponry marched to the Holy Land, slaughtering Jews and Muslims. The first crusade was fairly successful. They did seem to fairly well take the Promised Land again, but there were four major crusades, and with each one of them over about a hundred-year period, they got worse and worse and worse until it was obvious there is no blessing of God on this. You do not propagate the kingdom of God by force. You don't. You preach the word, and you let the Lord do it. 
But they did. They went in and they slaughtered. And many of the church's critics to this day will point back to the Crusades and say, see, you're no different from the Muslims because of what you did. But that was one isolated time in history. You can point out about two or three things where the church made big mistakes, generally in the Middle Ages. They did the so they did the witch trials, the witch hunts, the inquisitions, and the crusades. And that is when the church just got off, thinking you could torture somebody and make them confess the right thing, thinking you could go murder and make people convert to your religion, and thinking that uh, you could find somebody who was in witchcraft and burn her and get rid of the witchcraft. And it was all forcing the kingdom and Jesus showed the church as time went by, obviously this is not anointed and the church has by and large departed from it. It was that, that one time period. But Islam from Medina onward has always been violent. After all these crusades, the four crusades, Muslim peoples regained control of Jerusalem anyway. Centuries passed by until we come to the early 1900s. Jewish people had been slowly but surely immigrating back to Jerusalem. Russia called it the brain drain because so many of their brilliant scientists and doctors and mathematicians were leaving. And, and, and they were interviewed during this time. Why are you going back to the Middle East? These Jewish people would be asked. They say, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel moved to return home. But see, God had already said in Ezekiel, I'm going to put hooks in your jaws. I'm going to pull you and draw you back to your homeland. And so what they thought was just a, a good idea to return back to their homeland that they had lost since the first century when Rome sacked it in 70 A.D. They said, this is just a good idea for us to go back. Well, I just think I want to go back. It was God. It was the providence of God drawing them back. You know, sometimes what you think is a good idea is a God idea that he dropped in your head, and he lets you think it's a good idea. <laughs> At first, the, the Jewish people returning to their homeland were welcomed because they brought technology, medicine, education, etc. But by 1948, they had grown so strong in local numbers and in land holdings that they declared themselves a nation. And on May 14th, 1948, they became a nation again. Now, Bible scholars believe this, especially prophecy scholars believe that when they became a nation again in 1948, the hourglass of Bible prophecy, end time Bible prophecy was turned upside down. And the final grains of the sands of time began to fall through because Ezekiel had prophesied that they would return to their homeland again gathered from many nations, gathered from the sword of persecution, gathered from all parts of the world. The prophets all through the Old Testament predicted that there would be a time they would be returned to their homeland. When they declared themselves a nation again on May 14, 1948, Bible scholars all over the world just had a fit because this was huge, hugely crucial, important, magnificent fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Well, when they declared themselves a nation, guess who didn't like it? A battle between the Arabs and the Jews. All the surrounding Arab nations ensued, and miraculously, the Jewish people won. And this caused even greater tension and hatred between Judaistic Jews and Islamic Arabs. 
the tension just increased and increased and increased because the Arabs said, it's our land. We've been there for centuries. And the Jews said, it's our land. It was deeded to us by God via Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Well, in the year 1967, one more key event happened and set the stage for the kind of terrorism we've been witnessing today. In 1967, after the tensions in the Middle East became unendurable, what is known as the Six-Day War took place in Israel, and against all odds, the Jews defeated an overwhelmingly larger number of Arabs and took control of East Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, and the Gaza Strip, all lands formerly held by Arabs. Now here we come to the controversy. Here is the hatred. It not only has to do with land, but it goes all the way back to the day that Ishmael and Hagar were told to get out. And Isaac was crowned the recipient of the covenant. But here's the controversy, and we're going to be watching it, folks, for a long time. Who does the land of Israel belong to? The Arabs say, to them. They've lived in the land for centuries. But the Jewish people say it was deeded to them by God. Now, what does the Scripture say? When all else fails, follow directions. What does the Scripture say? Genesis 12, 1 says this. The Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land. Can everybody say with me, to a land? To a land I will show you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, after Ishmael was born and before Isaac was born, <laughs> Abraham begged God to let Ishmael have the land grant. Did you know that? In Genesis 17, Abraham was so sick of waiting for God's promise to come to pass. Here's what he said in Genesis 17, verse 18. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. How many of you have ever wanted an Ishmael to live before God? Now, what I mean by that is something in the, of the flesh and not of the Spirit. Ishmael did not come from faith on Abraham's part, but from unbelief. And so, how many of you have ever had an Ishmael? And how many of you have ever said, oh, Lord, can't this just be blessed? Why can't this just be blessed? Please bless Ishmael. Oh, that this thing that I've hatched, that I've produced, that I've given birth to, can't you just bless it? Can't you just let it live? Come on, everybody. It's a real thing. Can't you just bless this relationship, God, please? Can't you bless this business that I know you didn't leave me to do, but I'm sure making a lot of money? Can't you bless this, Lord? I want you to notice what God said. It was so profoundly theologically, he said, no. <laughs> now, how many ways, how many ways can you not understand no? Either N-O or O-N. No. He said no. You know, when God says no, it's no. I mean, if anybody tells you no, it's no, but when God tells you no, it's no. I mean, just walk away from that deal. It's no. But the good thing is, if he says no, he's got an Isaac down the road. And you've got to trust him for that. Because he only says, amen. Because he only says no if he's got something 
better, if there's something in his purpose and in his plan for you, that he just can't fit what you want into it. So he said, no. And here's what he said. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you're going to call his name Laughter, Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Period. No question. Ishmael, as far as being the recipient of the covenant of the land and of the promises, could not, could not become the one. God said that he would make Ishmael fruitful, the father of 12 rulers and a great nation, but that his covenant would be established with Isaac, who was still to be born. Isaac was the son of promise. So the land title went from Abraham to Isaac and eventually to Jacob. In Genesis 25, verse 5, Jacob, it says, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Now, how much is all, everybody? It's all. No is no, and all is all. And he gave all, the land, the covenants, everything, to Isaac. God reaffirmed his intention by personally speaking to Isaac. In Genesis 26, verse 3, God tells Isaac, Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, Isaac, I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. One thing about the Word of God, it means what it says and says what it means. You can't get around that. All the lands of the Abrahamic covenant, Isaac, are coming to you. So he clearly deeded the land to Isaac. Then Isaac to Jacob. Isaac deeded the land to Jacob and so did God in Genesis 28, verse 13. Here's what we read. Jacob is having his dream of a ladder reaching up into heaven. The angels of God are ascending and descending on that ladder. He's having an incredibly prophetic dream. And God speaks to him. It says that as he had the dream, behold, the Lord stood above the ladder and said to Jacob now, Isaac's son, Jacob, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, how in the world were all the families of the earth blessed? Through Isaac's and Jacob's seed. Because Jesus was a Jew. Yeah. Jesus was a Jew. He came through the lineage of Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was Jewish. Salvation is of the Jews, Paul said. So that's how all the families of the earth have been blessed through their lineage. Now, one last thing. He clearly deeded the land and turned to Jacob. Right there, we just read it. He said, your descendants are going to be as the dust of the earth. You're going to spread abroad to the west, east, north, and south. All the land. And then from there, Jacob's son, Joseph, 
made one final statement as he was dying on his deathbed. He said this in Genesis 50. Joseph said this about the land that we've been talking about this whole time. Joseph said to his brethren in chapter 50, verse 24, this is how Genesis closes out. Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you. Now they were in Egypt at the time, under the Pharaoh at the time. But he says, God's going to visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Little did Joseph know that four centuries down the road, Moses would be called to take that staff and God's power into the land. He predicted something four centuries away and said, God's going to visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Jacob, or rather Joseph, took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph was saying, I'm in Egypt. God blessed me in Egypt. I had a reason to be here, not only to save many people alive, but to save God's chosen people from dying of famine so that the Jewish race would increase and grow because out of that race I'm going to bring the Messiah. Man. And they grew to over a million people in Egypt. Now, Joseph was saying, I'm going to die here and you're going to bury me. But when God takes you out four centuries from now, don't you leave my bones here. You carry my bones to the land. You take me to the promised land. And there is such a picture of the rapture of the church there. Because though we die on this earth, which is spiritual Egypt, and they bury our bodies on this earth, we got a covenant with the covenant maker. He's not going to leave our bones here. Uh-uh. We're going to be raised from the dead and taken to the promised land called heaven. And so we see clearly God deeded the land to Abraham, to Isaac, then to Jacob, then to Joseph. So whose land is it? Well, by divine right, it's the Jews. Now, I want to close this with this. Hey, Pastor Jeff, what do you think is going to happen? What's it looking like out there to you? Well, here's what I think. Today, when I left the house, they had hit Haifa with another bomb. Israel had been hit again. I don't know what's been happening since then. But Israel had been hit with another bomb. What we're seeing right now, in my humble opinion, is not World War III. It is a precursor to World War III. All of the players that Ezekiel in chapter 38 and 39 puts in place, the Russians, ancient Persia, which is Iran and Iraq, all of the co-conspirators who will come together with an idea to destroy Israel. We already know that the Iranian president has made his position very clear. They need to be wiped off the map. Let's don't be stupid and walk away going after the, the next newscast that says he can be negotiated with. No, no, he can't be negotiated with any more than you could negotiate with Hitler. Because somebody who wants to destroy another person or people and they've made their minds up there is no negotiating it's either you or them and we should have learned that with world war ii and the nazis but we apparently have not that when you're dealing with a barbarian mentality and that's what radical islam is 
It is destroy if you're not one of them and subjugate the world to yourself. It's either you or them. I believe that what we're seeing right now is a precursor to what is coming. It's like a woman that's pregnant. Here she is. She's nine months pregnant. The baby's kicking. You have all the signs in the world that in her womb is a, is a child kicking, moving, churning, letting you know, hey, the birth is just about here. When you see these armies gathered against Israel, the Bible says that they will do it and they will attack it. And it will look like an overwhelming number of enemies have descended upon that tiny land. But Ezekiel said that the fury would rise in God's face and that he would intervene on behalf of that little tiny dot on the world map. And he would personally destroy those who came against Israel. That's what it says. And that when that happens, they're going to begin to have a revelation of Jesus, the Son of the living God. And so, to me, this could easily be a fuse that goes into World War III. It could escalate into World War III at any given moment. But the Bible, I think, definitely hints that there will be a couple of nations that say to these armies, what do you think you're doing? And I don't have the time to go into it. Maybe some Sunday soon I can. But they're called the merchants of Tarshish and the young lions or the offspring from the merchants of Tarshish. And they are Gentile peoples who look at what they're doing to Israel and say, what do you think you're doing? And there is at least a, at least a, a shred of a protest against it. And I think that's us. As long, and, and I'll guarantee you, we're going to look for a way to funnel missions money into Israel. And we're going to start giving to Israel. Because these attacks, this hostility is not of God. It's not from God. And the Bible says when you see all these things coming to pass, you better lift up your head. I mean, you ought to wake up this way. You ought to watch those newscasts and then just do like this. I mean, keep your life clean. Walk with God. I mean, get in tight with Jesus. Because he said, when you see these things coming to pass, lift up your head. Your redemption draws very near. Come on, church. <laughs> Hallelujah to God. It's true. And so I watch, well, I tell you, every day I wake up and say to Kathy, I say, well, who was blown up last night and who was involved? And I'm watching very closely. She called me last week and she left me a message. She said, Jeff, I just watched a newscast. I wish you could have seen it because a man was being interviewed in Israel. And he said these words. He said, it's no surprise to the Jews and it's no surprise to the Arabs and it's no surprise to the world. It's going to take a third party to end this. Well, the Bible says when the tribulation period of seven years begins, the Antichrist will come onto the world stage charismatic, convincing, eloquent. And the way he gets the confidence of the world is he brokers a peace agreement 
between the Jews and the Arabs. And they say, nobody's been able to do this. I hate to say it, but Condi won't do it. It waits for him. And it'll last three and a half years. And then all hell will break loose on this planet. And Armageddon will begin. So I believe we have a, a time. Win as many people to Christ as you can. Live for the Lord. Because these things are so uncannily true. You got all these people acting out their part on the world stage and they do not know that the providence of God told them what they were going to be doing 2,500 years ago. So it's not going to end. There will be no successful peace agreement. And if there is, Because that's what it's all headed to. Did you know that Zechariah said in the last days, Jerusalem would become the sore thumb of the whole world? We used to read that and go, how could that be that little slice of, that little bitty spot on the map? But now Jerusalem is the sore thumb of the whole world. All the diplomats and countries of the world have been dragged into this conflict, just like the prophets said. So can we stand together today? <clears throat> Well, we covered a lot today, and don't forget next week, the signs of the times. Oh, I tell you, I was investigating this, digging up some stuff for this, for this message, and I just got so, it's just, I just put it down, and I go, oh, God, because the signs of the times all around us, we're going to talk about it next week. We're still in the red ink. We're still in red letter living, but we're going to see what Jesus said about the last days. Father, we just thank you that we live in exciting times, perilous times, prophetic times. And you know, while our heads are bowed for a moment of prayer, you know, maybe today you're here and you can say, Pastor Jeff, I'm not where I need to be with the Lord. I used to walk with him, but I've gotten away. And he's been talking to me about coming back to him and giving him my heart and my life. Or maybe... You've never given Jesus your heart and been born again. I tell you, friend, I would come to him the minute I had a chance and I'd get my life right. We have no guarantee of tomorrow. You have right now. You can say, Pastor Jeff, I'm in one of those two categories. I used to walk with him, but... Boy, just step by step, I got away. And I know he's calling me back, calling me home. Or I've never, I've got a question mark about whether I've ever been born from above, born again, had my heart changed by Jesus Christ. If you're in one of those two categories, would you raise your hand right where you are right now? Just slip it up and let me pray for you. I see you. Raise your hand, slip it up. God bless you and you. God bless you. I'm going to ask you if your hand is raised. I'm going to ask you to slip down and come and stand in front of me right here. I want you to come now. Just slip out and come. If you're with somebody, just say, hey, go down there with me. 
and they'll, and they'll come with you. But the minute you take one step, God's with you, and he's going to change your heart. If you raise your hand, you just come. Slip out and come right now. In Jesus' name, come on. Thank you, Lord. We're going to wait just a moment. 